delighted to be joined by Julia Birchall. Um, she has enjoyed writing all her life and has written more than 30 textbooks over the past 25 years, including several Cambridge Lower Secondary and IGCSE English guides for Collins, such as Cambridge IGCSE English Students Book, which shows students how to progress with a clear student book structure that moves from building key reading, writing, and technical skills to applying these skills to specific question types and coursework tasks. As well as being a published author, Julia was a teacher, examiner, and teacher trainer for Cambridge University. Thank you so much for joining us, Julia. You're welcome. Good to be back. Good to be here. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we'll start with um, with six opening more general questions about becoming an author. Then we'll move on to your, your top three tips um, for, for people wanting to become a, an author. Um, and then to finish, we have two questions that have been submitted by um, by the ISN community. Okay. So with my with that, uh, my, my first opening question uh, to you, Julia, is why, why should educators think about writing or, or becoming an author? Um, I think the first thing is as an outlet for their own creativity. I um, I used to be jealous of my students when I set them a writing task because I wanted to do it. And in fact, sometimes I did do it and uh, they'd be like, what are you doing, miss? You know, I'm doing it too. I, could, I couldn't not. So I think um, as educators often, you know, our creativity goes on the back burner. We're very busy, you know, we're marking all the rest of it. And actually, this is a, a wonderful outlet for creativity, not just because you can do some of your own creativity, writing because occasionally I'll find a gap in a book and I'll think oh, I, I don't know a text that would fit there I'm just going to write it myself and occasionally I look back over books I've written or been a part of writing and think oh that's a nice passage and then I think oh I wrote that that's you know it, it, it so there's a real buzz about it um but I think also um it, it's an incredible journey when you write your insight into the I'll call it metacognition, but but the minutiae of how your brain works when you're writing is so much more acute. It's very easy in the classroom to say, do this, you know, write a newspaper article. But actually, if you yourself have sat down and tried to write a newspaper article, then all the understanding that I hope you're going to teach the students is, of course, in the forefront of your own mind, because you've had to process it and think about it for yourself. So I think it makes you a much better teacher if you're also a practicing reader and writer. Um, I say the third thing is credibility, because actually sometimes I used to read the kids things I'd written and they'd be like, Oh, that's really good, you know, or I well, didn't think much of that, you know, whichever. But the fact that you are talking about being a writer in the classroom, I think is fundamentally um, important to the children that they, you know, you're not just teaching something which is at a distance from yourself, something abstract, you're teaching something which is living and breathing. And kids, a bit like they don't really think about where milk comes from, you know, a cow, they also don't think about where literature or, or you know, text comes from it just appears in their lives and to actually have a person you know writing um, and talking about writing in front of them I mean I, I would also advocate writing in front of them modeling you know if you're lucky enough to have the technology to have um, to be able to type and talk I used to do it all the time I used to say to the, to the students oh I think I'll start with this word no 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 that's not the right word and that sometimes they'd shout out you know and oh try this one miss you know and that whole process they need to see you you know for your own credibility as a teacher really yeah and and how easy is the journey to um you know from having the idea um to then you know getting getting ultimately published 
I think it's not the easiest of journeys, in all fairness. I think if you're going to cold call, you know, if you're going to be JK Rowling and send send a manuscript in, you're going to have a hard old journey. Um, I think that you can often find a way in by offering to review or to um, you know, become um, an active part of a community um, around a publisher, for instance. So publishers will often put out requests for people to write them reviews, or would you like to take a sample of something and try it in the classroom? And it's a very, very quick way of getting the attention of a publisher. There's another really easy way, which is if you have book representatives come into your school, um, and you go and chat to them, you know, and look at the books that they're bringing in. If you say to them, oh, actually, I'm a bit of a writer myself, quite often you can give them your email. Uh, that, that's how I started to write for Heinemann um, years and years ago, because I'd reviewed something for Hodder. And I was telling the lady in the staff room, you know, she was showing me her wares and I was buying a few things for the department. And I said, actually, you know, I've done some some work for Hodder, but I, you know, I'm interested in doing a bit more. And it took about a month and then I just got an email saying, oh, our representative said you were a bit interested. Um, examining is another really useful way into it because the examiners will have links or the exam boards will often have links with publishing houses which are just established already. Um, so I think, you know, there are ways in, but you also need to be aware that even if you get an in with a publisher it's not a quick process because within a publishing house they'll have what they call a proposal they'll have an idea for a book I mean you can even give them an idea I, I've been to a publisher and said I've got an idea for a book and they've been like oh okay yeah but it's then got to go through this hideous process of writing samples um, sending them out to schools, having students look at them, then it's got to go to committee and be allocated funding. So it can be um, a good year between an idea being mooted and actually certainly any money. I mean, you can wait another year for any money. So it's a long old process, to be honest. You've got to be patient. I always think of a book as being like a baby. It's a good nine months in the in the offing at the at the very least. <laughs> Yeah, and I love that. I love that sort of um, thought that you had about uh, yeah. If if you see people about, or you're sort of with a publisher from from another publishing house, that you know you can sort of talk to them about about your interests, and, and that's a potential other way in, isn't it? That's um, that's yeah. a really interesting. The small world it is very relaxed. I think we think of publishers as monolithic, you know, entities. Again, a bit like the kids, we don't really think about where the books come from. There are people at the end of that process, and often they're ex-teachers anyway, and they're very interested. If they're not ex-teachers, they've certainly got degrees in the subject you'd be writing in, and they are genuinely interested in a dialogue. So, um, it's definitely worth. Um, that way but I think that's easier to make the human contact than it is to just send a piece of writing I think that that that's harder to, for it to find a desk to land on hmm. great tip love that um, how, how should potential authors figure out who their audience might be if they have an idea um, who should who should they uh, yeah how should they think about that who, who's going to read it I think it's tricky I would always advise people to write for the audience they know because that's going to be your best writing 
Um, and if you try artificially to create a piece of writing for, you know, an audience in your head that you think, you know, this might work for, I don't know how successful that is. There are writers who can do it. Lionel Shriver, she just decides on a topic and she writes about it, you know, because she thinks it's going to sell. I, I, I personally couldn't do that. Most of my writing would come from things that I feel passionate about and the audience for them would generally be um, the children. That said, I mean, if you do get involved with the publisher, they'll often provide you with the audience. So I have written for audiences I don't know. Um, for instance, I was asked to write um, a textbook for the Caribbean market for CSEC, and that's not a market that I have any personal experience of. In which case, you really do have to do some research and talk to people on the ground and have contact. Otherwise, you're setting yourself an impossible task, really. So, you know, stick with what you know, stick with what you're confident, stick with an audience who, again, you can do the metacognition, you know, what are they wanting? What do they need? Because otherwise your writing isn't going to be um, effective anyway. And how, how should potential authors ensure that they are considering non-native English speakers when writing? It's tricky because on the one hand, you don't want to oversimplify your writing to the point that it's got no validity because your writing is a teaching tool for a non-native speaker. They'll look at the way you use idiom, they'll look at your grammar. So you can't dumb things down, that, that, that's not going to work. Um, I think that you need to be aware of very specific dialectical issues and idioms. Um, for instance, I got very tangled up with robots and traffic lights early on in my career, writing for African audiences, because I didn't know what they were meaning when they wrote robot in their essays. And they obviously didn't know what tra a traffic light was if I put that in a text. So it helps to have other people around to help you with those kinds of things because you won't always know you know the idioms so for instance when an exam board is setting an exam paper there'll be a team of about 15 people who'll read all the material and say oh you can't use that word that doesn't mean that in that country or no that's too confusing i think other advice would be try not to use too much irony you know irony is incredibly hard to translate um, and I think analogies some of us are terribly wordy and we love a good old analogy but in actual fact it can be very confusing for you know a non-native speaker trying to work out what you you actually mean so keep, keeping it literal and keeping it relatively simple and of course very simply provide a gloss which again I've had big arguments with people when we've been putting exam papers together about glossing things and um, you know that will make it too easy but in my head I always think what would the average 16 year old living in another country know would they necessarily know that word so you know a bit of glossing goes a long way I think. Brilliant and, and before you begin the writing process um, do you have a clear idea about the the purpose of your piece do you always know if, you, if your purpose is to inform sell persuade alarm reassure for example um, or, or does that sort of happen uh, organically as you as you write? It's a bit of both I mean often you're given a brief so you've got no you've got no choice you know if you're told you've got to write a piece to, to have a certain effect then you've got to go with it. Um, there are occasions where a moment will strike me or I'll be doing something and I think I've got to use that um, and then then I kind of feel my way so I can remember um, driving I was actually driving to a funeral in Glasgow so I'd flown to Glasgow I'd got a hire car I was driving along the sat nav was leading me a very merry dance and suddenly I saw a billboard for an advert um, and 
I was parked, I think, at a traffic light looking at this advert thinking, that's amazing. I've got to use that for a lesson. And it percolated for the next three days in my head as to in exactly what way I was going to use it. Similarly, I can remember being in Costa Rica with my children on holiday and uh, we were on a boat in the middle of a river that looked like chocolate. It was dark, dark red mud. All the men had to get out and push. Well, if anybody able-bodied had to get out and push this boat because it was the mud was so um, you know gloopy. And I can remember thinking, I've got to get a bit of paper. And I was scrabbling around in my bag for one of the children's coloring books or something, you know, and writing things on the back because I just knew it was going to be of use to me at some point. And it later became part of a textbook and it was about teaching metaphor actually, um, because of that one moment thinking that water's like chocolate and it just stuck in my head. So you can store things up, you know, for future use. But I would say once you get to be a semi-professional writer, unfortunately you don't get a lot of choice in, in your purpose really and so i suppose inspiration can also strike from anywhere can't it so opening your your eyes and ears to, to the sort of sights and, and sounds around you is uh, could you know could could hugely help in uh I, I consider myself to be a well-paid scavenger, you know, I, I steal bits of magazines, you know, I tear things out of newspapers, aeroplanes, I'm forever, you know, taking bits of the airplane magazine away because there's so much of interest there, which I, I don't necessarily think exactly what I'm going to do with it. I have a folder that I keep on my desk and I just put anything that looks interesting um, and my all my friends and family now know, so they'll tear things out and send them to me. My dad regularly takes photos and emails me articles that he thinks oh you might want to use this dear you know so wow that's that's very cool so so you sort of put together like an ideas book almost and and do you go back to that you know when, when you're looking for inspiration or is this something that you might go back to once a month uh, or yeah how, how do you sort of um yeah so I, I collect it I add add to it all the time and then when I get asked to write a book or I've got a new idea for a piece of writing in my head I'll go back to it and think, oh yes, that would work. But sometimes there's a trade-off because you think, oh, I don't want to use that article. It's too good. I've got to keep it for something else. You know, there's a bigger task um, that, that, that that can fulfill. So you sometimes do have to play, you know, jiggery-pokery around to fit the task to, you know, fit the text to what you want because good texts are, are not, you know, easy to find. When you actually sit down and look, you know, the day that you decide I am going to find a text today which will teach metaphor perfectly, you won't be able to find one. Um, they come to you. And if you're a reader, which, you know, most most teachers, I'm an English teacher, so I'm reading all the time. You just you have little snippets. And rather than trust my memory, I'll just take a photo with my phone of a page in a book that I think was nicely written. And I'll keep all those little snippets in a folder in my phone because when you're writing a textbook you you often don't need five six hundred words of text you're looking for about 30 words and actually those little 30 words don't stay in your head by memory you've got to you've got to collect them so it's a bit like scrapbooking in the modern age I suppose so I have the the manual thing and then I have the electronic as well brilliant uh, and my last opening question um what exciting opportunities um does being an author offer 
Oh, well, not. I suppose it depends how successful you are. But um, uh, I think the first thing is you feel good. You know, you're helping people. I love it when I get reviews from teachers. You say, oh, thank you. You know, you saved my bacon. I was so tired. And, you know, there, there was a lesson and the kids loved it and it all worked. Or, um, you know, I, got, I love using, you know, whatever methodology I've suggested. So, you know, feeling good is, is a lovely thing in itself. You meet other writers because, um, very few books are written on your own you can't write you know an 800 word page book on your own so you end up in a team of writers and that in itself is brilliant um i have a writer that i regularly review his writing and he reviews mine because we think the same way so it, you know that has has started to help um and if you get in a dialogue with teachers, of course, you're meeting teachers from all over the world who will feed in ideas and different ways of doing things. Um, if you're very lucky, then you get to travel. Um, so I've done a few conferences around the world where um, I've been a speaker or I've been you know, there to introduce my book, for instance. Um, and of course, that's fantastic. And if you're lucky enough you know, to get on, on that, you know, into that realm, then, you can also then scavenge to your heart's content because you're actually in country so you can get lots of fantastic resources to feed the rest of your writing wonderful so yeah i mean so many benefits of uh, of, of, of being a uh, being an author and um, loads of opportunities that that opens up i imagine yeah brilliant so now moving on to your top three tips um yeah num num your number one tip uh julia what, what's your number one tip well my first tip is about not setting tasks but actually thinking about the whole series of skills that you're trying to teach so as an example if you were to say um i'm going to write to you about um writing a story please write me a story about a day that you lost something that isn't actually writing about how to write a story it's setting the task of writing a story and it's very important to get that distinction clear in your mind because teachers are very good task setters we write exams end of year tests weekly tests and it's lovely if you want a quiet lesson to just say everyone write a story but it's not actually teaching them anything it's testing whether they can do it really um, so for me my top tip is that you've really got to break down what you actually want them to know um, and the way I do it is to create a mind map so if I'm using that example of writing a story, I'll get a big piece of paper and I'll start writing down everything that involves. Um, and sometimes it's a bit scatter, scattergun um, and I might take a few days to keep coming back to that. You know, oh yeah, they need to remember that. And, oh, they need to remember that. And of course, depending where the students are, in, if you've been teaching them for a long time, then you'll know that you've already taught them some elements. So the next thing I do is go to my mind map and try to put it into sequence. What are the things, what order do these things need to be taught in? Because sometimes there is a sequence. And do they know some of them already, in which case I can mention them, but I don't actually have to go in there um, and teach them. And so, I mean, for me, teaching students how to write narrative, that, that could be a month's work. You know, it wouldn't be one, one lesson. Um, and I would, you know, maybe focus for a whole week just on narrative structure and how to do it. I think, you know, having each step on its own is really, really important, but also don't keep overloading them with new material. So 
I might take one example. So if I was teaching narrative, I might have one story that the children really like, maybe a fairy tale of some kind, and they understand the story like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, inside out, it's very simple, because that's not the test. And then all of the steps that I apply, I go back all the time to that same story. Right, well, how did that writer structure it? Where's the moment where the, dr the drama racks up? You know, where's the moment where everything goes wrong? Because then the students are applying all the steps, but they're not having to constantly deal with a new context for them. So keeping the context steady, but the steps separate, you see what I mean? Absolutely. And, and, and your, second, your second top tip? Um, so this is all about, um, really the the timing i suppose of um writing i mean i i wrote when i was working full-time i was a mum to two very lively noisy boys um two dogs two cats and um for me it was very very important to create blocks of time in my life that were just for writing because i don't find writing easy if i'm distracted so i know that i myself can't write in an untidy room so i have to get all my triggers out of the way and clean the room that I'm going to be working in first. Um, otherwise, I use it as an excuse. Um, but also then a time where no one's going to break my train of thought, because often if you think back to my other tip, which is about this sequence, you get quite far down into thinking about the cognition required for something. And then somebody bursts through the door and says, Mom, where are my football boots? It's gone. Um, so I used to write from 4am to 6am in the morning, which sounds as if I am some kind of lunatic, but actually for me it worked because the house was completely quiet, I could just get on with it. But the other part of that tip is that I didn't review what I wrote. I just went into the zone and I wrote and wrote and wrote and I write on a word processor, didn't worry about technical accuracy, didn't worry about my spelling, typos, of which there were millions. I just got it out of my head because it felt like an urgent need to um, get all this stuff down. And I didn't worry at that point about the sequence of my ideas. Um, and sometimes that even as I was writing, I was thinking this needs to be earlier in this chapter or this needs to be later. But I want to just get it out. So I would write for two hours. I don't really think you can do much more than that with concentration. And then I would leave it. Um, and I would do that twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays it was for me. Um, and then on Saturday, I would go back over what I'd written. And that's when I sorted it out, put it into order, maybe cut and pasted things. Um, and it, it, I'd had some distance because I can't see typos for a start anyway when I've been typing for two hours. But also in terms of during the, the, the days between the writing and the reviewing, I'd often be thinking about what I'd written and thinking, hmm, I'm not sure about that. Maybe that's, you know, whatever. So you need time, you need time away before, you know, you, you go back and really refine what you're doing. And you're probably gonna do that refining process again. You'll have an editor who'll look at your work as well. Um, but yeah, definitely little chunks of time that are dedicated and um, a reviewing time, which is separate. That's very, <clears throat> excuse me. Very intentional process, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, not, not just sort of waiting for the for the moment to hit you and then just spending seven hours maybe doing it. Maybe maybe some people might work like that, but maybe what might work for the majority of people is really thinking about, okay, I'm going to set aside two or three sessions a week, 
um, two hours maybe, you know, and, and just sort of get your thoughts and ideas down, not worry too much about the structure. And then, and then again, set aside some, some intentional time, um, you know, interspersed between that to, to look at the, not the, maybe the content side of things, but actually the general structure and sort of overall sort of proofreading. Yeah. I, um, I had a notebook. I mean, there were times where an idea would come to me and I'd have to write it down because I'd be worried otherwise I'd lose it. So, you know, there would be random occasions in between the writing periods where I jot an idea down or a text or something like that. But in actual writing terms, yes, yeah, definitely. I'm keeping that as a separate thing. Yeah. Great. And your final top tip, Julia. Um, so this is one that I've learned through bitter experience. Um, so usually when you're writing, you're going to need to gloss your writing and you're maybe going to need to write answers down. And I went through a phase when I first started writing of thinking, well, there's no point doing that until my writing has been accepted by the editor and until copyright has been granted for any texts that I've used. So I'll just leave it. And believe me, that is the most thankless task in the universe, because finally, you know, everything will get approval, the publisher will contact you and say, great, 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 right, it's going to be um, typeset in two weeks time, please can you do the gloss and the answers, and it's so boring, and it's also difficult, because you've got to have the text up on the screen, which will be in an early proof stage, so you're reading through it thinking, oh, I need an answer. You've then got another text open and you're writing in the answers separately. And I'm not good at that, going back and forth between two texts for a start, don't like it. But also it's long and it's boring and you might have forget the answers you thought because for me, you know, if I'm teaching, I don't know, if I've written a chapter on how to write a summary, there'll be 20 potential answers all of which at the time were very obvious to me as I was writing. Um, and, you know, three months, four months later, I've got to read it all again and, and search for them. So I think actually keeping a file open from the very beginning where you put any glossed words in and you put your answers in, even if you've got to reformat it and you may lose a few of the answers or something may not get copyright and you've got to um, you know, change it, it, it's probably worth it just for the misery otherwise of having to do about six hours work at the very end of the process when you're tired. I mean, it is just like having a baby. The last thing you want to do at the end of producing a book is then spend another the six hours on something which isn't even much fun <laughs> yeah that's a great tip and sort of keep keeping that up as you go along rather than exactly. having to do such an arduous task right at the end once you've uh, once you've completed it and yeah great tip brilliant one wonderful well um that's those are the top top three tips from julia now we have um two questions um that okay. have been submitted by our by our members um and my first question is um in what ways do you ensure the broader aims of international education so developing global competencies building intercultural understanding and respect inspiring young people to help to create a better and more peaceful world. Um, how, how do you make sure these are addressed in, in sort of subject specific textbooks, such as English language and literature? Um, there's an awful lot of planning, to be honest, that goes in in the very early stages. So um, you'll, you'll have a team of people, usually one person within the writing team will put the plan together and then distribute it. And the first thing that the, the team will be looking at is, okay, there's the hard curriculum content, which is usually defined by a government or a, an exam board curriculum, but then there's the soft um, curriculum as well, which has got to be laid on top. And so you'll have discussions about, oh no, that's a good chapter to be able to do that because 
some of those um, some of the things that you want to teach say skills won't have a content they won't have a specific content which means you can layer content on top um, so referring back to that Caribbean book there was a big um, agenda in the Caribbean um, for personal social education and for um, fighting domestic violence, which was not something I was aware of, but we were told by the government advisors on the ground that it was something they wanted to put through their education system. And so we were able to choose texts which dealt with that topic um, and not necessarily for their literary merit. It wasn't to teach anything literary, we might use that text in a speaking listening activity or another context, you know, where we were teaching them skills, but the text just stood there as a point of interest. Um, I mean, representation is always an issue as well. So when we look at um, text selection, again, there'll be quite a lot of discussion about are we representing um, one culture more than another? I mean, lots of textbooks are very Anglo-centric and that's a really big challenge especially if you're writing from England or America and you haven't got texts um, at your disposal so there's a lot of challenge goes into you know questioning each other and don't you think this is all a little bit too you know too European shouldn't we be finding something from Asia or shouldn't we be finding other things so it's about planning really and interrogating the texts to make sure it represents the market you've got mm. Really interesting, yeah. And and, and um, uh, another question we've, we've um, received here is, is what is your process for ensuring um, a diversity of texts? So authors and topics, um, making sure they're represented in the literary excerpts and activities aimed at developing key reading and writing skills. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky with literature because the, the literary canon is often not representative of modern day values. And I think you've got to be confident about challenging those. So part of the teaching process is to say, you know, clearly this was a normal way. I mean, if you think about Of Mice and Men, the way Lenny is treated, um, you can teach that in the classroom, you can read that, you don't have to accept the way he's treated, you can ask the students how they think about that and how they feel about that. So as a, write, as a, a writer, you'd be encouraging the teacher to challenge stereotypes and to challenge outdated thinking um, in literature. I think um, within language uh, tasks, it, it's a bit easier because we can control to some extent the um, proportion of texts which are based in one culture to another, which feature men rather than women, which, you know, treat people in certain ways. So as a writer, really, you are making the difference because the more female writers we include in our writing, the more children will understand that women have been writing, you know, since time immemorial, same as men, they just haven't been published necessarily. Um, so, you know, it, it's a big responsibility. And that's where the art of scavenging comes into um, play, because certainly one of the things I always look for is um, young writers competitions in other countries, because um, a, they're cheap actually because they're not necessarily copyrighted um but and they like to have an audience you know so they'll share your their story with you or their poem with you but actually you're, you're then seeing genuine writing from the culture cultures that you want to represent and you know that you want um included so yeah lots of scavenging lots of asking teachers what's the best story you know at the end of if i've been delivering teacher training in a country I'll say on the last day, can you all bring me a photocopy, just one photocopy of something you love using in your classroom? And they will, 
and you know few of those will find their ways into books just because they're offering something that I just can't get my hands on you know from here that's a great tip I think yeah really doing your research in um in in that in that culture that you'll be um that you'll be teaching in or, or writing a book for um and that sort of young young, young writers competition uh, idea is uh, is a great one to and it, and it really sows the seeds doesn't it and, and helps encourage um yeah local writers that might not have had that exposure before um and really you know shining a light on it for for the local um for the local population and students Blogs are great. I mean, if you if you're looking for travel writing, there's lots of bloggers out there who write really well, um, you know, and you can contrast that with some really kind of you know Victorian travelogue, which um, is written in a completely different you know style and way. So there is a lot of so the internet is hugely helpful, but being out there on the ground is I mean your community of writers is going to be wonderful because if they start sharing the, their best texts and their best resources then everyone in that community will instantly have access to you know hundreds of texts which is just great. I think that's it isn't it having having a diverse voice from all four corners of the globe um, all coming together across across key topics is such a such an important thing isn't it um, especially where communication can be quite polarizing in these days in um, specific sort of groups I think it's um, yeah yeah it can only be a good thing I think and, and publishers are very very aware I mean I've got to say you know they they're not blind to the need to serve their whole market and um, they do work very hard and again sometimes it is soul destroying but you'll finish a book and then you'll the publisher will come back and say no too many white male texts in there you know need to take two out please and you know even that's even with the planning it's just the way the book ends up looking and feeling um and so at the very end you might have to pull something out and and you know either write something yourself sometimes that's sometimes that's the easiest way just to give get that variety you know um but yeah publishers are very aware i think so i don't think that prospective writers should be put off by thinking i don't look like those writers that i see on on the shelf because actually that publishers want more diversity and they want more coverage Thank you so much, Sheila. That was uh, that was fantastic, and um, and I'm sure you know, there's so many tips that, that we've discussed um, that the members of ISN and, and the wider um, community that, that are you know, that are interested in publishing, um, publishing, getting into writing for the first time can can take away. So yeah, thank you so much again, Julia, and um, yeah, welcome. brilliant stuff. Yeah, thank you. Good luck, everybody. <laughs> bye bye. Bye.